0: didn't realize it at the time, but this will be the same uh, tune that is for our closing song as well. Interesting how this psalm anticipates hearing about the righteousness of God, which he has decreed and which endures forevermore. Paul is addressing that in our passage this morning. So if you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. As we continue our series uh, through this book, Romans chapter 1, uh, this morning, beginning at verse 8. and reading through verse 17, page uh, 1747 of the Bible from Adventures. So this is God's word. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that at now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but I've been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. See, I'm obligated to both Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then also for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So far the reading of God's uh, holy word. Congregation and friends of the Lord Jesus Christ, so uh, undoubtedly, as a Christian in the city of Rome, when you heard that a letter, this letter, written by the Apostle Paul, was coming to your church, you would have sat up and paid attention. This is no ordinary letter, of course. It's not even an ordinary letter by one of the other apostles, but this is a letter from the Apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, the preeminent apostle to the Gentiles, and you are receiving a letter from him. Of course, as a Christian in the city of Rome, you would have heard a lot about Paul. It was known that Paul was born maybe 16 years or so after the Lord Jesus Christ was born. Paul grew up to be one of the top religious scholars in Judaism. He had training in the finest schools and he excelled in his studies. He believed, as a young man and as he grew, that Christianity was a damnable heresy. It was a perversion of the Old Testament religion that Paul was trained in. That's what Paul believed growing up. And by his late 20s, Paul was a henchman orchestrating the persecution and the murder of the followers of Jesus Christ. You would have heard about that. But this is also the Paul who then reported his radical conversion to the Christian faith. Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, and the Lord physically blinded him there. But in physically blinding Paul, he spiritually opened Paul's eyes. He unblinded him. He revealed himself to Paul. He showed mercy on him, saved him by his grace. After an extended period of study, Paul, calling himself, as he did earlier in the letter, and we looked at that, a slave of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, he goes about all over the known world. And instead of persecuting the church and killing Christians, he's preaching the gospel of Christ and he's calling people with great success to the Christian faith like the world had never seen. And if you were in Rome, you would have heard about Paul because God through Christ was turning the world upside down through this man whom he called to be an apostle. But, if you were a Roman Christian, Rome, the imperial capital, the great political center of the known world, if you were reading this letter in that church, and you had heard about Paul, who was supposedly the apostle to the Gentiles, there would have been two questions coming to your mind when you heard this letter read. Let's see if we can figure out the first one of these questions. I'm going to tell you where Paul had been in his ministry up to the point at which he wrote this letter. I'm going to tell you the cities, or at least most of them, where Paul had gone to minister to the Gentiles up to the point where he had written this letter. And I want to ask you, what city is missing? What city would you have expected Paul to visit that up to the time of his writing this letter he had not visited? Antioch. Papah, Perga, the city in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. Italia, Jerusalem, again to Antioch, Derby again, Lystra, Troas, Neapolis, Philippi, Apollonia, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, Caesarea, Berea again, Antioch again, Ephesus, Thessalonica again, Corinth again, Philippi again, Troas again, Athos, Mytilene, Miletus, Tyre, Caesarea again, and Jerusalem again, Over the span of three missionary journeys, Paul had been to all these places to visit all of these Gentiles. But what city is missing? It's Rome. Rome is missing. Now, at first glance, that may not seem significant, but the first question likely you would have asked in receiving this letter from Paul as a Christian in Rome is, Why has Paul not been here in Rome? Rome is the capital of the Roman Empire, obviously. It's the political center of the known world. At least symbolically, it's the economic center of the known world, of the Gentile world. And how does it happen that the apostle to the Gentiles has not come to the church in Rome? Are we being neglected? Is Paul somehow unconcerned with the church in Rome, full of Gentiles? Are we somehow outside of the faith that Paul is preaching? Well, this is why Paul addresses uh, the Roman church with these words in the first part of the text that we read. He gives sort of three answers to this question. Are you being neglected? Am I unconcerned with the church in Rome? first thing he says is, no, it's not true. Uh, I am not neglecting you, uh, Gentile Christians in Rome. Look at verse uh, 8 at the beginning. First, I want you to see, look, I'm not neglecting you, but I thank my God, through Jesus Christ, uh, for all of you. And the second part of of verse 9, God is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. It's not a lack of concern, Paul says, that I haven't been to Rome uh, to see you. In fact, he says... I do want to see you. And even more than that, i planned to come and see you. You see that in verse 11 at the beginning. I long to see you. I desire to come and to see you. And in verse 13, I don't want you to be unaware. Not only do I want to come, but I've planned many times to come to you. The problem is what? I've been prevented from doing so until now. And what is prevented, Paul? Well, it's his other work, but you notice in verse 10 in the second half, He's praying that at last by God's will the way may be opened for me to come to you. So, really, Paul says, Yeah, it makes sense to me too, as the Apostle of the Gentiles, that I would go to preach the gospel to you in Rome. But I haven't been able to do it yet because the will of God has prevented me from doing so. He's had me laboring in other fields. But he wants to reassure them, not out of a lack of his desire or concern for them, as the preeminent Apostle in the church of this time. But he also then, in telling them that they're not being neglected and that he cares for them, he wants to uh, take this opportunity to remind them of who they are and indeed how God is using them in his kingdom, in the expansion of the gospel. Because thinking that Paul was not concerned for them, they would then probably think that they were not significant in the faith, or that God was not using them in this great expansion of the gospel that they were hearing about. He wants to remind them, tell them who they are and how God is using them. It's uh, the second part of verse 8. He says, you know, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Why? Because your faith is being reported throughout the whole world. Your faith is being reported or announced all over the world. The picture that he wants to give to the Roman Christians is, they is that they are part of the Church of Jesus Christ a significant part, so much so that the other cities are hearing of the flourishing church in the city of Rome and they are taking courage that the Lord is working there. We like the same for us. If we hear about the gospel going forward in the different lands and that uh, people were coming to grace and faith in Christ, if we hear of a, a church plant that is succeeding, it is encouraging to us because we see that the gospel is succeeding there And that verifies our own faith. And so the faith of the Romans is being reported around the world and it is encouraging not only the other churches around the world, but also the Apostle Paul himself. This is why he says, look, this is part of the reason I want to see you. Verse 11 again. I want to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. See, what happens is Paul wants to get there because he wants to be encouraged just, just as the other churches in the Gentile world world are being encouraged by hearing of the faith of the Roman church. Now, I'm going to be curious what he means by that. I want to impart to you some spiritual gift uh, to make you strong. Well, we hear explicitly uh, what that is. Uh, first of all, in verse 9, God whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son. And then in verse 15, that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. The spiritual gift that Paul has been given to strengthen uh, the believers in Rome and around the world is the preaching of the gospel. And that gospel, in Paul's understanding, will create faith in their hearts will strengthen those who already have faith in Christ, and then he will be encouraged by seeing the Lord's work in their life, and that will be reported throughout the world, and the other churches uh, will benefit from that as well. So they are not being neglected, you see. i saying, look, I'm not neglecting you. The fact that I haven't been there yet. I've tried to come. I care for you. I pray for you. I'm thankful, and you are part of this work. Now the text also shows us that there was likely a second question you would have been hearing if you had received this letter in Rome from the Apostle Paul. Put yourself in the position of a Roman Christian for a minute. Imagine you were in the marketplace. and Of course, the majority of people in the city of Rome were not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The church was a minority. So you're in the marketplace and it comes up that you are a Christian. The person with whom you are speaking is not a Christian. And they, in fact, are skeptical of your faith. They've heard about you. They've heard about the way. They've heard about the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they think that those people are quite radical. There were rumors going around that these people were cannibals. As Christians talked about eating the Lord's Supper. They said, well, whatever is the case, we don't believe in your Lord Jesus Christ. And the more you got to talking with them, the more you sensed the hostility that came from the average citizen in Rome to the Christian faith. Why? Well, of course, at the root is that they hate God in their heart. But outwardly, what? What did the Christian faith have if you compared it to the glory of the Roman Empire? Well, nothing. It didn't have money. didn't have political power. All of the light and the glory and the wisdom of the Roman Empire was contradicted or was not found in the Christian church. And if you had professed faith in that Christian church and you were a member of that Christian church, you would have been marginalized. And what were you going to point to as the power and the authority of your church? Well, all you really had was the message that was being proclaimed in your midst. So the question that would have been going around in the culture and then maybe had infiltrated a little bit into the church at Rome was, well, yeah, Paul, the Christian faith is going to take off. And the Christian faith is going well in all of these sort of unwise, primitive areas. But the Christian faith and Paul's message its not going to cut the mustard in the imperial capital of Rome. You see, you might be able to convince some weak-willed people in the Gentile world, some people who will grasp after straws to believe anything, some people who will follow any myth that there is, you might be able to convince some people, Paul, with this message, this thing you call the gospel. But it's not going to fly in Rome. And you know that, Paul. Christians might be thinking, I wonder, is Paul ashamed? You come and announce this message here? We have a little record, it's not in the scripture, we don't know how reliable it is, but we have a little record of what Paul looked like. According to this description, you'll see that Paul is not exactly a man who physically is going to command your respect. He is reported to be, quote, a man rather small in size, bald-headed, bow-legged, with meeting eyebrows, and a large, red, and somewhat hooked nose. So the Christians in the Roman Church, and certainly the culture in Rome, the skeptics, might be saying that Paul is ashamed to come here because his theology, his preaching, won't fly. His faith is a joke. It won't stand up. What does Paul say to that? Verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in it, the Gospel, for in the Gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now these verses are the answer to the skeptics in the city of Rome and even to those who are wondering a little bit in the church. This is the answer to the question of whether or not Paul is ashamed To come to Rome, whether or not Paul has uh, lacking confidence in the gospel that he has been preaching, this is that answer. It also serves uh, to be a, a basic summary statement of the entire theme of this letter. But this is his answer to those who think that he is lacking confidence. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You understand why he is not ashamed. He is not ashamed of this gospel. And you remember from the last couple of weeks that we said, the gospel is something that happens. When Paul says gospel, he's not thinking of a doctrine per se. He's not thinking of a systematic theological category like law and gospel. He's thinking of something that happened. Something that happened. And what was it? It was that Christ had entered the world and lived, died, and rose for his people to release the creation right, from its bondage to its unglorified state. And worse than that, it's tainted with sin, unglorified state. Because after Adam had failed to obey the Lord, the creation was subjected to futility. Not only was it tainted with sin, but it had not now been able to reach its highest glorified potential. And when Paul thinks about the gospel, he thinks about Christ not only atoning for the sins of his people and making them spiritually alive in Christ, but he's thinking about the whole creation now uh, having the beginning stages of being brought to its glorification. And when Christ came, according to the old, tainted, locked up, unglorified world, remember Paul called that according to the flesh, Christ came like that, but when he rose, He rose according to the Spirit. That is, He brought in the new age of glorification. Of course, only the beginning stages of it. But that's the event. That's the gospel Paul's thinking about. And he's not ashamed of that gospel. Why? Because, verse 16, it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now notice, when Paul's saying that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. He's not only saying that the gospel saves people from their sins, although that's part of it. But he's saying that the gospel, the fact that Jesus came to release the creation from its bondage, also secures, again, not just the deliverance from sin, but it also secures their place in the new creation. To be saved doesn't just mean that you've been released from your sins, but to be saved means that Christ has earned for you the new creation and that you will be glorified. And it's the power of God that raised Christ from the dead that has first saved you from your sins and then in the last day will transform or conform your earthly body to his glorified heavenly body. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation, but then notice, of everyone who believes. The gospel, Christ coming into the world and affecting the new creation, saving people from their sins, securing their glorification in the end, is only for those who what? Who believe. You see, it's not everybody in the fallen creation, is it, who will receive this glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only those who believe. First for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. And to explain that a little bit further, that idea that only those who believe will be found in Christ. Look at verse 17. In the Gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness from God is revealed. And what does that word righteousness mean? What does that word righteousness mean? Well, first of all, you need to understand that righteousness is what you need to stand before God in the judgment. Righteousness is what man needs to stand before God in the judgment. It is the condition for you to obtain glorification. Remember what we said. Not everybody in the fallen world will inherit the glorification. You must believe. That is to say, you must have righteousness. Righteousness is what you need to stand before God. Paul says this in Romans 10.3, speaking of some unbelievers. We'll look at this later. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. All the... The point I'm making there is to show you that righteousness is something that you must have. It is the condition that you must have to obtain to have the glorification. It's what you need in order to go free in the judgment of God and to know yourself discharged from the divine sentence. All of us, as sinners who are born into the unglorified world, must have the righteousness that comes from God to stand before Him. What does he mean, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed? A righteousness from God is revealed. Isn't it true that all people across time were saved because of the righteousness of Christ? That is, all who uh, worship the true God? I mean, the way of salvation, right, that didn't change when Jesus came. People were always saved through faith in Jesus Christ, right? In the Old Testament, they didn't know Christ the way we know Him. He had not come into the world yet. But they had faith in the promise that He was coming. And so they were saved through faith in Him and through His blood, which had yet to be spilled for Him, right? So then, righteousness was preached to them. Because they had that righteousness. They had that condition. So what can Paul mean when he says, in the Gospel, the thing that happened in his time, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, in the Gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. I mean, hadn't that been revealed all throughout the Old Testament? Well, what this means is that Jesus, the One who gives us His righteousness, had finally appeared in history to do that and to bring in the new creation. Let me explain what I mean by that for a minute. Galatians 3.23, Paul says this, Before faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Before faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. It's not that people before the time of Christ were not saved by faith, but people in the Old Testament before Christ came were saved by faith, before faith came. Or before righteousness was revealed. And what Paul's speaking of, he's basically using the word righteousness, or the word faith, as a synonym or a word just like the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, who is the one in whom people put their faith to have righteousness. It would be like Paul saying, before Jesus came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until Jesus should be revealed. Now that Jesus has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul uses the word righteousness, but uses it interchangeably with Christ himself. It is because of God that you are in Christ, who has become for us our righteousness, says Paul. Christ has become our righteousness. So when Paul says in Romans 1.17 that in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, what he's saying is that Christ, the one in whom everybody across time has looked to for salvation and found it in Him, Christ has been revealed. The one who actually accomplished that which everybody who had faith in him was hoping for, he has now been revealed. Now not everybody, what, has uh, faith in Christ. And the gospel of righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness, what, that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You need to understand uh, this morning that you need to have righteousness, of course, first of all, to stand before God. There's one place to get it, and that's through faith in Christ. That is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says this in Philippians 3, 8. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things and consider them trash, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but having a righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. You see, Paul's not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel displays the power of God for salvation and the power of God even for you to deliver you from your own sin and your own corruption in this old world. But the only way that that may be yours is to have this righteousness. The only way that you may stand before God and receive the glorification is to look completely away from anything that you have in yourself and look only... To what is offered to you in Christ. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. What did Paul say? It is a righteousness not from my own, but that which is through faith in Christ. A righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. What does that mean? That means that you will stand in the judgment of God. You will receive the glorification not because of anything that you have in yourself, or anything which you might attempt to get, or do, or anything which you might achieve in the future. But the only reason that you may stand in the judgment, you may have the righteousness of God, is because your empty hands have reached out to embrace Christ. Or to put it better, you have received with your empty hands that which Christ has already done for you. The righteousness, the condition which you need to stand before God comes from Him. If you think that you will stand before God in the last day because you were raised in the Christian school, or because you support this Christian cause or that Christian cause, or give money to the church, or because you attend church every Sunday, or because you're a pretty good person, not as bad as the other person. If any of that is in your mind about how you will stand in the judgment before God, you do not have the righteousness that will stand in the last day. None of it. You see... Because you need a righteousness which doesn't come from yourself, but it comes from God. And you receive that righteousness by saying that I am worthless in and of myself before God, and that Christ is the only one who has the power and was willing to come and live a life of perfection in my place, and then submit himself to a murder to take God's punishment on himself for my sins. And your empty hand of faith reaches out and says, Christ, that's what I need. And having that righteousness, that's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now, I need to point out to you in closing you know, we'll hear a lot more about this righteousness in this book. That um, this gospel is as, or this gospel and the righteousness that uh, comes from this gospel. Is as absolutely unimpressive to the world as it was in the, today, as it was in the time of the Roman Church. You know, I mean, the people who are not Christians today, the people with whom you interact, are going to say the same thing to you uh, that the unbelievers said to the Roman Christians when they heard that Paul was coming to town. I mean, this kind of teaching, is not very outwardly impressive in this world, to say the least. In fact, it's very offensive. I mean, I don't know, to tell people, even good people, that they're going to go to hell unless they have faith in Christ? How's that sound in this culture? How does it sound to you? Not very impressive. And you know what? The church if she's going to be faithful in this world, if this church as she's going to be faithful going through her transitions to the Word of God, to the marks of a Christian church, to preach the gospel faithfully, to administer the sacraments, to exercise church discipline, if she does that and she's faithful to that, it's going to be very unimpressive. Nobody's going to come in here and hear about this, oh, wow. because the things that uh, we speak of are shameful to the world. It's kind of strange to uh, confess that you're pretty wicked. Even stranger in a Christian culture historically to say that you're a Christian who struggles with sin and falls far short of God's commandments and not to come off arrogant to unbelievers. That's weird. Christians don't act like that. True Christians should. And that is unimpressive to this culture. You need to be reassured this morning that the message that you hear preached and the business of the Christian faith according to God's word, though it is foolish to the world, you people believe in these myths you need to be told and reminded that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. You have been saved from your sins through Christ. And not only that, but the glorification is coming when Christ will return and He will cleanse you all finally out completely from your sins and He will destroy this old world, well, recreate it, purging it, And the enemies of God will be the ones who are ashamed. You know, as a people united in a profession of faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are very unimpressive to the world. But what is evidenced among us is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And what looks unimpressive now will change in the day to come. It will change in the day to come. You are being shielded, Peter says, by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Part of your salvation has already been revealed in Christ coming to earth and earning it for you. But the fullness of that salvation is ready to be revealed in the last day, and it is coming. And you fight your sins and you resist the temptation to compromise until that day. And though you will be mocked and marginalized as a Christian, you will be mocked and marginalized as a Reformed Christian for making such a big deal about wanting to keep the Gospel straight. All of this, resist the temptation to compromise because the power of God has broken in over you. And in the last day, the full power will be revealed in you and to all the world. And you will not be ashamed, nor will you be tempted to be ashamed, because every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of our God and Father. And in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray together. Nothing in our hands we bring, but simply to your cross, O Christ, we cling. Again, we confess to you our sins and beg you for mercy. But thank you for the righteousness that comes from you and by faith. Thank you for Christ, that He has lived and died and rose for us thank you that the power to release us from our captivity to sin has broken through in this age. Thank you that through the preaching of the gospel we may have contact with these powers and also in the sacrament. I thank you that you have found us. And would we not be ashamed of the gospel? Help us to Hold fast to that which is true. Help us to cast off all of our own supposedly good works and all of our own things which we try and achieve, spiritual disciplines and all this. Would we never see it as a way of standing right with you, but would it always be gratitude? Would we cling to Christ and count all things rubbish for His sake? So that in the last day, when your full salvation is revealed, we will be seen as righteous and we will stand. Thank you for the assurance that Christ tells us all who come to him will be by no means cast out. Thank you that as we cast ourselves before him, we have the assurance that we will stand in him. We ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen.